Last night we spent quite a bit of time talking about the problem, talking about the physical allergy that ensures we can't safely drink, talking about the obsession of the mind that ensures that we can't keep from drinking. And the ultimate conclusion to that was if you can't safely drink without getting drunk, and if you can't keep from drinking, then you've become absolutely powerless over alcohol, and most certainly our lives have become unmanageable. If not at that time, we just keep on drinking, and after a while they will be for sure. So this morning we're going to look at an example of a guy that had that problem. A good textbook never tells you anything anyhow, but what it don't back it up with more information. And we're going to look at Bill's story this morning. And Bill's story is a classic example of an alcoholic who had the allergy and who had the obsession of the mind. Now, we've got to remember back in the 1930s, Bill learned very early on the value of sharing your story with another alcoholic when he went to see Dr. Bob. And immediately Dr. Bob could see his problem also. They went to see Bill Dotson, and they shared their stories with Bill Dotson. Bill Dotson could see his problem through their stories. And they learned very early on that it was necessary for one alcoholic to identify with another in order to be able to get their interest and get their attention. And when the big book was first published, they knew they wouldn't be able to sit down with the first person out here in California and share their story one-on-one. So the big book had to be complete enough to do that. So they said, we'll put Bill's story in here at the very beginning. And another alcoholic in reading Bill's story will be able to identify with Bill. And if we can identify with Bill and see his alcoholism, see him make a recovery from that condition, we can begin to believe and we can begin to hope that we're enough like Bill Wilson that if he could recover from that condition, then just maybe we could too. Now, a lot of people have said, well, we, don't, we have trouble identifying with Bill Wilson because, after all, he was a night school lawyer and we were not. After all, he was a New York City stock speculator and we were not. And a lot of the women say we can't identify with him because he's a man. And many people say, well, he was an older fella and we couldn't identify there either. But if we look for the way Bill thinks and the way Bill acts and the way Bill drinks... If we're a real alcoholic, there's not an alcoholic in this room that can identify with Bill Wilson. So as we go through Bill's story this morning, we'll look for identification. We'll look for the progression of alcoholism. We'll look for him drinking finally for the sickest reason of all, complete oblivion. Then we'll look and see how Bill recovered from alcoholism. And if we've identified with him, then we can begin to believe that if he could do it, just maybe we could too. Identification, the beginning of belief, the beginning of hope. Joe? See, I too didn't think I could identify with Bill Wilson because I'd seen pictures of him. He was an old man, I thought. Turns out he was uh, 43 years old when this book was written, so a relatively young man. But as I began to study and read Bill's story, I began to see that he was a very optimistic person, hardworking, had lots and lots of willpower. He was a self-made man, became very successful in his own right. And through Bill's story, we're going to see how... He learned uh, how he was, what he was like. Then we're going to see how he uh, learned that he was sick, and then we're going to see how he affected a recovery. So the total story of Alcoholics Anonymous is contained in Bill Wilson's story. So let's go to page one, <clears throat> Bill's story. He said, War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned. 
and we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. It was love, applause, and war. Moments sublime with intervals hilarious. Anybody ever had any moments sublime with intervals hilarious? <laughs> I have. I love the way Bill writes. He said, I was part of life at last. In the midst of excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and prejudices of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a doggerel on an old tombstone. It said, Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold, small beer. A good soldier has never forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. Now, when he said, or by pot, he's not referring to this wacky weed. <laughs> he's talking about a pot of beer. That's the way they used to drink it over in England at that time. He said, ominous warning, which I failed to heed. Twenty-two in a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me special token of appreciation? My talent for leadership, I imagined, would one day place me in the va- head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. He said, I took a night law course and obtained employment as an investigator for the surety company. The drive for success was on. I proved to the world that I was important. I already identify with Bill Wilson. That seems to be one of the main characteristics behind every alcoholic I've ever known. That great drive for success was on. I proved to the world that I'm important also. That seems to be the driving force behind each one of us. He said, my work took me about Wall Street, and little by little I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Well, why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or to write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wives. I can identify with them. <laughs> so we had long talks when I would steal her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk. I have no trouble identifying with Bill Wilson. That the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. Charlie said last night we make our living selling fast talks to slow-thinking people, and Bill's trying to do some of that here, but we all know that Lois didn't buy that. He said, by the time I'd completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting male stream of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that will one day turn in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. It went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and managements, but my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. Now, Bill is referring to a time back in the 1920s when the stock market was on a roll, just about everybody that dealt with stocks was making money. All you had to do is buy them and hold on to them, let them go up in price, sell them, take your profits, buy some more. Everything was done on about a 10% margin. Everything was pure speculation. Bill really became one of the first investment counselors on Wall Street. He began to say, look, sooner or later this bubble is going to burst. Sooner or later we're going to have to start making our decisions based on fact rather than speculation. He went to the people who had the money, and he said, I don't have the money to do this, but if you guys would back me financially, I'll leave New York City and I'll start visiting these companies. 
and I'll look at the plants and I'll talk to the employees and I'll examine the books wherever I can and I'll write up reports and send them back in here and we'll start making our decisions whether to buy or not based on fact. And they said, nah, Bill, we don't need that kind of information. We're making about all the money we, might, we want to make anyhow. And you know how we alcoholics are. If we get a good idea, stubborn as hell, we're going to carry it out one way or the other. He said, to hell with them. I don't need them anyhow. I'll just go do this on my own. He said, we gave up our positions, and off we roared on a motorcycle. The sidecar stuff with tent blankets, a change of clothes, three huge volumes of a financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. <clears throat> Perhaps they were right. I had had some success in speculation, so we had a little money. But we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. <clears throat> Bill and Lois, traveling on the motorcycle, living in the tent, went up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States, and he wrote up reports on approximately 100 of the largest companies in the eastern states, sent them into New York City. The guys that had the money saw them, and they said, Oh, yeah, man, this is great information. Immediately they put Bill on the payroll, gave him a large expense account. He exercised an option, made a good profit. For the first time in his life, he's got something. He came from a little town called East Dorset, Vermont. He had never had anything before in his life. Here's how he feels. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. <laughs> God, how many of us have done the same kind of things Bill did? My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important, exhilarating part in my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in, th in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair-weather friends. And here's Bill now back in New York City on top of the heap. He's making money for himself and a lot of other people. He's drinking also, but drinking is not a problem right now. It's a very exciting thing, and Bill is really, really, really becoming a success at what he wanted to be. We also know, though, that if he's alcoholic, his drinking is going to get worse because it is a progressive thing. Let's see where he goes now from the top of the heap. He said, my drinking assumed a more serious proportions, containing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a round. I became a lone wolf. How many of us have done the same thing, Bill? But people begin to say, Bill, you're drinking too much. Bill, you're costing us money. Bill, why don't you cut back? Bill, why don't you quit? And once again, rather than even consider that, Bill said, to hell with them. I don't need them. He begins to operate on his own now. I have no problem identifying with Bill Wilson. So there were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity, for loyalty to my wife helped at times by extreme drunkenness kept me out of those scrapes. And I've always believed about everything Bill wrote, but I'm not sure about that. <laughs> you see, we have a book in AA called As Bill Sees It, and now and on they have a book called As Lois Remembers. <laughs> a whole lot different. <laughs> They're not exactly the same either. Let's go over to page four, first paragraph. 
Now here's old Bill. He's making lots of money. He's doing well. He's got lots of willpower, lots of hope for the future, hardworking, optimistic, a self-made man. On page four, it said, abruptly in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was 8 o'clock, five hours after the market had closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ32. It had been 52 that morning. He said, I was finished, and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to the death from towers of high finance. He said, that disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. <laughs> Bill had a solution for that, didn't he? My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock, well, so what? Tomorrow was another day, and as, as I drank, that old fierce determination to win came back. How many of us have done the same thing? Could come out of the jailhouse, the divorce court, the hospital, or wherever, low, sad, depressed, stop off in the bar, have a couple of drinks, and as the alcohol courses through our veins, we say, we'll show them. By God, they're not going to treat us that way, and we're off, and we're running again. That old fierce determination to be somebody to show them. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I'd better go to Canada. You know, Bill was a drunk. He wasn't stupid. He knew where the money was, so he went to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our custom style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No Saint Helena for me. But drinking caught up with me again. My generous friend had to let me go, and this time we stayed broke. Now we see our drinking progressing to the point where we can no longer even hold a job. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work at a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places, people at where he used to be the fair-haired boy where he used to make lots of money for lots of people. He goes in there now, and they're saying, Bill, we'd rather you didn't come in here today. You're about half drunk, and you don't look good, and you're smelling bad. You're embarrassing in front of our customers. Please move right on down the street. Certainly, certainly, we can see the progression of alcoholism. We've gone from excitement to now then we've gone to the point where it controls us completely. No longer hold a job. Nobody wants us around anymore. It starts to get worse. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Now we're drinking for an entirely different reason. We're drinking now because we absolutely have to drink in order to live. No fun left anymore. No excitement. Drinking in order to be able to live. Bathtub, chin, two balls a day, and often three got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. Now this went on endlessly, and I began to wake very early in the morning shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin followed by a half dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. Remember last night, Dr. Silkworth said we really cannot differentiate the true from the false. To us, what we're doing is normal. We see Bill's life going to hell in a handbasket already. Bill can't see that. He thinks he can still control the situation. Let's see where he goes on control. Things are real bad in Bill's life, but it says gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died, and my wife and father-in-law became ill. He said, then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point in 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. This is a story within itself. The people who had the money knew how good Bill was at putting these deals together. And they came to Bill, and they said, Bill, we've got a proposition for you. 
We've got an opportunity to not only make money for us, but make money for you. And if you can stay sober, we'd like for you to handle this thing. And Bill said, don't you worry about that drinking. He said, I'm through with that drinking. You'll not have to worry about that. And he worked for a matter of months putting this deal together. And a few days before it was to be successfully completed, one night, they're all sitting around in a hotel room talking about this. Somebody passes around a bottle of Applejack. This was back during the days of Prohibition. It came to Bill, and he said, no, thank you, I'm not drinking anymore. After a while, it came back to him, and the guy next to him said, Bill, you don't understand what this is. He said, this is the finest Applejack in the world. It is called Jersey Lightning. You better have a drink. And Bill's mind said, hmm, I've never tasted any Jersey Lightning. No more thought than that. He reached out, grabbed the bottle, took a drink, triggered the allergy, couldn't sober up, blew the whole deal. Now, the importance in it lies within the next statement. He said, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I I saw that I could not take as much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I'd written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. For the first time, Bill could differentiate the true from the false. For the first time, he could truly see what alcohol was doing to him, and he did just like all the rest of us. He trotted out his willpower, and he said, Sick em, Will. We're through with that drinking. We'll never drink again as long as we live. You know, they tell us, try to tell us we are weak-willed people. Don't you believe that? We are strong-willed people. Weak-willed people do not become alcoholic. Third time they vomit, they quit drinking. <laughs> alcoholic knows there's got to be some way to drink without puking. We damn near kill ourselves, you know. We got lots of willpower. See, but Bill doesn't know what we learned last night. Anytime there's a battle going on between the willpower and the obsession of the mind, the obsession of the mind is stronger than willpower, and it'll always win. That's how strong it is. Let's see what happened to him on willpower. He said, shortly after, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way, and I'd taken it. He said, was I crazy? See, if his willpower is not working, then he begins to question his sanity. Am I just crazy? Is that it? He said, I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Now, renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed, and confidence began to be replaced by cocksuredness. He said, I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day, I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. And as the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time. But I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. Anybody in here identify with Bill Wilson? Huh? He said the remorse and horror and hopeless of the next morning are unforgettable. Can you guys hear him from the back? Can you hear back there okay? Yeah. Okay. Uh, my voice is a little low here this morning. Okay, where am I? All right. Laughlin, <laughs> <laughs> Nevada. I got a one. Yeah. <laughs> I I got a wonderful memory. It's just short. <laughs> he said the remorse and horror and hopeless of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably. There was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck. For it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again, Was so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. 
then a mental fog settled down. Jen would fix that, so two bottles in the oblivion. See, Bill questioned, his, he used his willpower, and that didn't work. He began to question his sanity, and that didn't work. And then he began to contemplate suicide. And then he was drinking for the sickest effect of all, total oblivion. And that's where we find Bill at this time. He said, the mind and body are a marvelous mechanism for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights from city to country and back as I, and my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I'd burst through my window, sash and all. Sometime I, somehow I managed to drag my mattress to the lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with heavy, heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity, and well, so did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. So now we find Bill drinking for oblivion, not eating very often. I can identify with Bill. He's dying of malnutrition, and I, re- I can identify with Bill because when I was drinking in those last years of my drinking, occasionally I'd eat a bologna sandwich because I knew you were supposed to eat something rather than just drink. And that's what Bill was doing at this time, dying of malnutrition. My brother-in-law is a physician. And through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. This is the town's hospital in New York City, and this is the summer of 1933. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Belladonna was a drug that they used to fool the body into thinking it had alcohol in it. It was used for withdrawal purposes. It's what they use Valium for today. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise help much. Hydrotherapy is a water treatment. We saw some of that in a treatment center in Australia back in the 1980s. They would put the alcoholic on a gurney, roll him into the shower room, and they had shower heads all the way around the shower room alternating hot and cold water. Be in there for about 30 minutes. Doesn't cure alcoholism, but it makes a clean drunk out of you, I'll guarantee you that. (laughs) Those guys that come out there and their skin all wrinkled up and shriveled up. He said, best of all, I met a kind doctor. Now, this is Dr. Silkworth, who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I'd been seriously ill bodily and mentally. Silky sat down with him and explained his ideas about the physical allergy and the obsession of the mind. And here's the effect it had on Bill. He said, it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. For the first time, Bill understood his problem. He knew it was not willpower. He knew it wasn't moral character and sin. He knew it was a physical allergy coupled with an obsession of the mind, and that's what made him absolutely powerless. And he said, now that I know what's wrong with me, I'll not have to drink any longer. Let's see where he goes from here. The information we learned last night about the doctor's opinion and the illness of alcoholism is very, very important information. But, you know, it's just information. It will not solve alcoholism just because we know what the problem is, as Bill found out. But it was not. For the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. 
and after a time I returned to the hospital. Now, this is the summer of 1934. A year later, we go back into the towns for the second time. He said, this was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. Bill was laying in the hospital room there all sick. He overheard Lois and Dr. Silkworth talking. She said, Dr. Silkworth, is there any hope for him? And he said, no, I don't believe so, Lois. We'll have to give him over to the undertaker of the asylum because there's no solution for Bill. And he said, they did, they did not need to tell me. He said, I knew and I almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities and my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to, to plunge into the dark, joining that endless possession of solitude that had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. Bill was a very hardworking, op optimistic individual, and now we see Bill. He is hopeless. He is without hope. And we all know you can't live long without hope. You've got to have hope. But Bill is hopeless at the moment. Now let's look at this next statement very carefully. He said, No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. I've never seen a better description of step one. No step one written in those days, but surely this is where Bill took it. He admitted complete defeat. Alcohol had whipped him in a fair fight. He was completely powerless over alcohol. Now, if that should happen to you and I today, chances are we would say, well, that being the case, I guess I better go to AA. But Bill didn't have any AA to go to. He's in the best facility he knows of. So even though he's admitted his powerlessness, even though he's taken what we know as step one, the only thing he can do is leave that hospital, try to stay sober on his own. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. And in Armistice Day 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn.